It's Tuesday the 10th of December and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, as the UK enters the final days of its election campaign, is the outcome really as certain as the polls suggest? We'll ask the former Downing Street advisor, Lance Price. What we pick up from all the uh, candidates who've been out campaigning around the country is that there isn't much enthusiasm for any of the party offerings. Plus, plans for Sydney's skyline are looking up with a new round of skyscrapers on the way. And Hong Kong marks six months of pro-democracy protests with another massive turnout. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. Well, we've been hearing over the past few weeks that this week's UK election is a done deal and that Boris Johnson will, by Friday morning, be back in Downing Street with a decent majority. But should we really believe those polls? And could tactical voting help stop a Conservative majority? Lance Price was the Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street, and he joins me on the line now. Lance, the thing about predicting election results is that things have been a little bit unpredictable in recent years. Do you think it's right to be marching into this poll with a little bit of scepticism? Oh, I think we should be extremely wary of the opinion polls because they paint a very broad picture of opinion across the country as a whole. And because of the electoral system we have in in the United Kingdom, that isn't terribly helpful. It gives you an idea that clearly Boris Johnson is ahead of the the Labour opposition, but it doesn't tell you what's going to happen in all the little seats around the country that will determine who ends up actually uh, as Prime Minister uh, after Thursday. So I think we have to be much more uh, focused on the key battleground seats rather than that uh, that global picture. Uh, we mentioned earlier in, in the introduction to this piece uh, tactical voting. Can you just explain specifically what we mean by that? Well, tactical voting really is voting in order to uh, achieve a, a, a different goal to to necessarily supporting the party that you naturally support. So if your objective is to make sure that Boris Johnson doesn't have a majority, then you look at the balance of the parties in your individual seat, never mind the rest of the country, uh, and work out how to cast your vote tactically in order to uh, cut down on the number of Tory MPs returned. So basically, it's as simple as that. So if you're if you're basically a Labour voter, you might end up voting Liberal Democrat, or you might end up voting uh, for an independent candidate or for one of the nationalist parties in Scotland or Wales, for example, uh, even though in your heart of hearts, you're Labour. And the same would apply if you're a Liberal Democrat or a Green or a nationalist yourself. Uh, and so it's a, it's a way of using your vote, lending your vote, if you like, to a different party to the one that you normally support in order to achieve a tactical advantage. Lance, all of this might carry considerably more weight, perhaps, in a nation with compulsory voting. How big a factor do you think voter turnout is going to be? I think that's a real risk in this uh, election on Thursday, uh, partly because uh, most of the polling, and we know we have to be wary of the polling, but I think it's it's true from um, what we pick up from all the uh, candidates who've been out campaigning around the country, is that there isn't much enthusiasm for any of the party offerings. So people may turn out to vote and vote tactically in the way that we've been describing because they want to prevent an outcome rather than to achieve an outcome. But if they really are uninspired by everybody who's um, uh, putting themselves forward to be prime minister, and if it's a rainy day and it's a bit miserable and they're just feeling generally fed up with life, then they may just stay at home. 
Um, and that, of course, can have a, make a huge difference. Turnout makes a very, very big difference uh, in terms of the outcome in, 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 in key marginal seats. Mm, enthusiasm for politics. It's a bit of a, a threat to democracies everywhere at the moment. Lance Price, we appreciate your insights as ever. That was Lance Price, the former Downing Street advisor. To Sydney now, where ongoing plans to redevelop the city centre are looking up. Here's Monocle's Nick Moniz. Sydney could soon be home to Australia's tallest building after its state and city governments agreed to permit new structures that reach 330 metres into the sky. The city's tallest habitable building is currently just over 240 metres. But there's a catch. Residential use in new skyscrapers will be capped at 50% to ensure that 3 million square metres of office space will be created in the urban core. Critics of the deal say that this caveat, which prioritises office space over a residential population, will turn central Sydney into a ghost town. And with cities like Melbourne prioritising residential development as a means of injecting vitality into their centres, they may be right. Here, new residents have brought life and business to the city's restaurants, bars and supermarkets. But with Sydney's new laws all but locked in, we can only hope the new office space will be a springboard rather than a death knell for the city's downtown vibrancy. A newly released index from the United Nations reveals some alarming global trends that ought to be a cause for concern in all pockets of the globe. The United Nations Development Programme has released its annual Human Development Index that ranks countries on measures such as life expectancy and years of schooling. The positive, since the first index in 1990, there's been a significant increase in human development across the world, although, admittedly, the growth has slowed down from 2010 onwards. The negative, this year the report has a particular focus on inequality and finds that a failure to address the growing wealth gap explains a rise in demonstrations worldwide over everything from the cost of a train ticket to broader demands for political freedoms. As for the ranking, there's no surprise when you look at the top countries on this year's list. Norway remains number one, followed by Switzerland and Ireland, while Germany is the highest ranked major economy in fourth place. How do these countries manage to stay on top? Because they continue to develop human potential by increasing access to broadband and boosting the number of adults with tertiary education. Boosting access to information, it turns out, is a good way to confront inequality too. And finally today, our Hong Kong bureau chief James Chambers reflects on six months of Hong Kong's massive pro-democracy uprising. Some changes are difficult to spot, especially when they happen right in front of us. For example, a close friend gaining weight, or parents bringing up a new baby. Living in Hong Kong feels a bit like that right now. Dramatic events seem to happen every day. We acknowledge it, quickly adapt, and then accept it as the way it's always been. Sunday's march in Hong Kong felt very similar to the first big march on June the 9th, when hundreds of thousands of people from all walks of life, took to the streets under blue skies. But if we pause for a moment to consider the changes, and the contrasts can appear quite stark. Back in June, the protests used to be about an extradition bill, and the chief executive, Carrie Lam, governed Hong Kong with a high level of autonomy from Beijing. Today, well-behaved teenage kids make firebombs, and there's little or no trust between the formerly well-regarded police force and the people they serve.
free Hong Kong graffiti now decorates the roads, while boarded-up shops and branches belonging to mainland Chinese banks and businesses line the protest route. Hong Kong has changed dramatically in the last half a year, and yesterday's six-month anniversary should provide a moment of reflection for all of us who call the city home. My thanks to our Hong Kong Bureau Chief, James Chambers. That's all in today's programme. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Wednesday. Wednesday.